Welcome to another podcast from the Burlington Congregation of the Church of God International. You can find out more about CGI Burlington on our website at cgiburlington.org. Here's an article that I came across. The headline is, Today's Feminists Are Unappealing Because They No Longer Fight for Women's Choices. This is an article written by Sandra Clark, and she goes on to say, to say women should fight under one progressive feminist banner undermines the notion that women are independent actors, able to determine for themselves what is moral, just, and right. So she's calling into question this whole feminist movement and how all women should rally behind this feminist banner. She says, the feminist movement in America began as a fight for political suffrage, that is, the the right to vote, economic independence, and personal autonomy, which are all good things to fight for. Now, almost a century after the 19th Amendment was ratified, many so-called feminist lobbies and leaders no longer promote the political interests of American women, but instead promote leftist policies which is not just true in America, but certainly true in Canada and and most of the Western nations. Um, While looking at that, I came across a new book. I haven't read it yet, but I I love the title. The title is Marxianity. So uh, instead of Christianity, Marxianity. I think it's quite clever because we've taken Christ out of Christianity and put Karl Marx in. So it's Marxianity, how the, evangel- how the evangelical deep, space, deep state and their useful idiots are merging Marxism and Christianity through social justice, white privilege, cultural Marxism, illegal immigration, interfaith dialogue, and more. So a very interesting book. He, they, they also have a new movie out, or a new uh, documentary out called Sabotage. And the first hour, it's a six-hour documentary. The first hour is free, and you can get that at sabotagethemovie.com. So a very interesting understanding of how Marxism is taking over Christianity and undermining Western civilization. The, The issue really with the Marxist agenda is patriarchy, destroying patriarchy. And that is the useful or the value of today's feminism, that feminism is designed to destroy patriarchy. And I think we in the church, both men and women, need to be clear on whether or not we see this feminist agenda as something we should get behind. Really, we're asking the question, what is a woman's place? And the answer to that question concerns all of us. And I want to show that in the sermon today that we have to understand a woman's rightful place in order to understand our place. If we don't understand the role of the woman, we cannot understand the role of a Christian. So it concerns all of us, whether we're married, single, young, old, male, or female. In fact, Pastor Murray, in his last sermon, talked about, be holy, for I am holy. I'm going to proffer that we cannot be holy if we don't understand the role of the woman. Because our whole purpose is to be set aside in the role of the woman supporting Christ. So this is very important for us 
in understanding our role. I want to begin in Ephesians 6. And as we go here, I kind of want to take a, a roundabout route to get to the heavenly order. What is it that God wants from us? What is he trying to do? And I want to open by answering this question by saying, let's look at Satan. Let's understand what God is doing by looking at what Satan is doing. Why? Because Satan tell, told us, or we see very explicitly, he wants to be the Most High. So he looks at the Most High and what the Most High is doing. And he, he's not a creator. He's an imitator and a deceiver. So he imitates the Most High, and then he deceives mankind into believing that what he is doing is the right way. In Ephesians 6 and verse 12, we see here that we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. So, from Ephesians 6 and verse 12, we see that there's a, there's a spiritual hierarchy. That just as much as there's hierarchy on this earth, and we are seeing different movements trying to overthrow the hierarchy on the earth, the hierarchy on earth is not all there is. We see from Ephesians 6.12, there's a hierarchy above the earth that is controlling the earth. And I think that's really important for us to grasp this. Now combine that, if you go to Daniel 10, Daniel 10, and verse 13, this is when Daniel began fasting and praying, and the angel Gabriel was dispatched to comfort and answer Daniel. And in verse 13, he says, But the prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me 21 days. So we see there's a kingdom, there's hierarchy on the earth, There's a kingdom, and there's a king above that hierarchy of Persia. But then Gabriel is telling Daniel that there's a chief of the kingdom of Persia. So we can see that over Persia, there was a spiritual authority that withstood, that was preventing Gabriel from getting to um, Daniel. But lo, Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me. And I remained there with the kings of Persia. So there are multiple kings of Persia, and there's a chief over all of these, or over all of this hierarchy. And this, we know, is an imitation. That Satan has these principalities and powers, and he has hierarchy. Why? Because he saw it in heaven. And he's trying to be like the Most High. And so what we should gather from this is that a time is coming when there will be godly powers over the kingdoms of this earth. That the earth will operate with kings and princes and various hierarchies. But over the human affairs will be a spiritual hierarchy. And that will be our role. That we are in training now 
to be over cities and over kingdoms. And so we can see from what Satan is doing what we'll be doing when Satan is removed and the proper hierarchy is established on the earth. Let's go now to Isaiah 30. And just saying all of this to be very clear that our role as Christians is is very distinct in this process of salvation. That we are first fruits. We've been called out early. We've been given the Holy Spirit early. We're being trained early because we have a very distinct role in this process of salvation. And here in Isaiah 30, in verse 18, where Isaiah spoke so much of the salvation of God for Israel and for Judah, that he, he came and he's coming to redeem Israel and Judah. And here in Isaiah 30, verse 18, he says, And therefore will the Lord wait, that he may be gracious unto you. And therefore will he be exalted, that he may have mercy upon you. This is Isaiah speaking to Judah. For the Lord is a God of judgment. Blessed are all they that wait for him. So instructing Judah to to look to their God and wait for him. And God will judge their enemies. For the people, verse 19, shall dwell in Zion at Jerusalem. That's the way it's going to go. Mankind is going to do everything they can for the opposite. Satan wants the opposite. And so Satan wants um, Babylon set up as the master city of the world. And at the same time, he wants control of Jerusalem. And he wants to destroy God's people in Jerusalem. And Isaiah says the opposite. The people shall dwell in Zion at Jerusalem. You shall weep no more. He will be very gracious unto you at the voice of your cry, when he shall hear it, and he will answer you. So right now he's a God that hides himself, and though they call to him, he will not answer because of their rebellion, but he's putting them through a process to lead them to wholehearted repentance. And when they get to that wholehearted repentance, he'll now re-engage his relationship with them, and when they call, he'll hear and answer them. And look at this. And though the Lord give you the bread of adversity... So that's what they're going to have to digest, the bread of adversity and the water of affliction. Yet shall not your teachers be removed into a corner anymore. But your eyes shall see your teachers. And your ears shall hear a word behind you saying, this is the way. Walk you in it when you turn to the right hand and when you turn to the left. So another thing that we see now in terms of the imitation of the devil, of what God will do, is what I would call celebrity culture. That Satan holds up celebrities as shining lights. We call them stars that we need to look to. And everybody cares about what these stars are doing, where they go, what they do, what they eat. Uh, And we pattern ourselves after them. Whatever they do, we want to do. Whatever fashions they bring in, whatever hairstyle, we all fashion ourselves after these people. Christians will be the celebrities of the future. That when we appear somewhere, it'll be a big deal. And everybody will want to know, oh, wow, where will Olivia be next? Oh, she's coming to our town. She's going to be teaching on Sabbath. And, and we will be the stars that people will look to 
and model themselves after and want to see us as role models. And so there is a role now. There is going to be this hierarchy, spiritual hierarchy, over the affairs of men. And we will ensure that the earth is righteous. So we will be these teachers. And this, again, now is going to be a supportive role of Christ. So we cannot fulfill this role properly if we do not understand the role of the woman. This is the woman's role, to support her husband. Let's see how all of this unfolds and where it started. Let's go back to Genesis 3 to see where this all began. In Genesis 3 and verse 1, the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And we know that that's true to this day. He's very subtle. It's hard for people to discern what he's doing. And he said unto the woman, Yes, has God said, you shall not eat of every tree of the garden. So his target is the man. Adam is the king. Adam is the king to replace him as the king of the earth. So he needs to overthrow Adam. But he does not go after Adam. He goes after the woman in order to hold the woman hostage to bring Adam down. So Adam is the target, but he speaks to the woman. He then succeeds in pulling them down. And then in verse 15, when God sentences Satan, he says, I will put hostility between you and the woman. So there was a relationship that developed between the serpent and the woman, and God negates that relationship, and he, puts, he replaces it with hostility. So now that relationship is completely broken down. And between your seed and her seed, so Satan will have a seed, and that seed will be hostile to Eve's seed. It shall crush your head. It will be a fatal blow to the serpent, and you shall bruise his heel. So it will be painful, but it will not be fatal. Unto the woman, he said, I will greatly multiply your sorrow and your conception. In sorrow you shall bring forth children, and your desire shall be to your husband. So whatever that relationship was with the serpent, it's over. There's going to be hostility. Make sure your desire goes to your husband, and he shall rule over you. Not, you should not have authority. The serpent should not have authority over you. Your husband should have authority over you. And unto Adam he said, because you have hearkened unto the voice of your wife, which was the strategy of the serpent to get to the wife first, and now you hearkened unto the wife, and you've eaten of the tree of which I commanded you. I, I told you face to face, I commanded you, saying, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground for your sake. In sorrow you shall eat of it all the days of your life. So Satan understood in his strategy to go after the second in command. So he, Eve was to Adam what Lucifer was to God. So Lucifer should have been a helper, a second in command to God. He should have been a helper, a supporter to God. But he resented being second in authority. And so he could appeal, he could use that understanding of, of being second to appeal to Eve and take advantage of her and, 
and overthrow the structure, the godly structure. In doing that, he also understood he would shatter the family, the family structure. That human beings need structure, and babies need family. And what we're seeing today, and especially with the feminist movement, is the destruction of the Christian family. Because that is a devastating blow to the human mind. That children who grow up without a Christian family will not have the right formation of mind. I say we, because I I can speak this personally. We will be plagued our whole life from not having that proper structure as a child. Ephesians 5. And and I think understanding this, brethren, is the key to withstanding the influence of Marxism. That Karl Marx hated Christ. He hated the Christian family. He hated the whole notion of family and wanted to destroy it and replace it with the state, have the state raise the children. And the cultural Marxists, the, the Frankfurt scholars, realize that what held them back from global communism was the family. That when they wanted to unite all of the workers around the world and have them fight against the bourgeoisie, it just didn't work. That people would not fight against their own family. That if I'm Polish and Larry's Polish, the fact that Larry's rich, he's still, po- he's still my countryman. And I saw my country as an extended family. So I'm not going to fight my own family. And so, much to their surprise, the workers united with their, with their extended family and fought other workers. They did not foresee this. And when they analyzed this, they said, what went wrong? What went wrong? Christian values. That when, when Christians bring up children, those children will be loyal to their parents. They'll honor their parents. And it doesn't matter what the state tells them to do. They're not going to go against their beliefs. So the whole agenda of Marxism is to break that. That what human beings should be loyal to is the state. Not God, not the family. So we need to understand that the objective is to destroy the role of the woman. That it's all about the woman's freedom of choice. Woman should be able to sleep with anybody anytime. And if she's impregnated in the process, no problem. We'll just abort the child. Carry on. This is the Marxist agenda. Here in Ephesians 5, God tells us very clearly what the structure, the healthy structure of family is. Ephesians 5, beginning in verse 22, he says, Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as unto the Lord. And notice that it's the wives that are to submit to their own husbands. It doesn't say, number one, that wives are to submit to all husbands, nor does it say that women are to submit to men. And there are a lot of Christian men who somehow believe somewhere in the Bible it says women must submit to men. I challenge you to find that scripture because I don't see it anywhere. Repeatedly, though, what I do see is that for healthy structure, wives should submit to their husbands as unto the Lord. So there's something about the marriage relationship which reflects the relationship 
between God and his people. So the same way that his people submit to him is the way the wives submit to their husbands. Because the husband is the head of the wife. There is structure. Even as Christ is the head of the church. And this is what the Marxists hate. This is what they have to destroy. And he's the savior of the body. So it is a structure where we are governed by Christ, but governed in such a way that our governor will sacrifice his life for us, has sacrificed his life for us. That's the structure. That's the, that's the extent of love. It's not an oppressive structure. It's a loving structure. Therefore, as the church is subject unto Christ, so let the wives, again, it's emphasized wives, not women, let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. And then the counter to that, husbands, love your wives. Even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it. And it is this bonding between the husband and the wife that is the, really the answer to mankind's ills. That if you have a man filled with the Holy Spirit and loving his wife with the Holy Spirit, and a woman filled with the Holy Spirit, and submitting to her husband with the power of the Holy Spirit, that bonding, when children grow up with that type of commitment with the parents and that clear structure, they grow up balanced, healthy, loving human beings. And there's a, there's a window, I think it's between ages zero and seven, that if it, if it doesn't happen in that window, then that child is scarred for life. If it does happen in that window, that child is set. And so when Jesus Christ came, when God visited earth, he came to earth in such a structure. Because he came as a human being. And so he was given this structure so that he would be nurtured and loved and shaped properly. And you have other prophets who did not have this who have been scarred for life and then they don't have that ability to have empathy or emotional connection with other human beings and then if they start writing and saying this comes from God and other people then try to model and be exactly like that person then they all inherit the same psychosis they all inherit the same callousness this matters. We, we should, a normal human being, if somebody else is in pain, we would feel pain. A normal human being is not going to rejoice and jump for joy when they see uh, human beings being tortured. So it is in this context that we come to Ephesians 6 and verse 1. So there's a strong bond and a healthy structure between the husband and wife. And now we can introduce other human beings into that structure. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with promise. So we have the father and mother in this loving union. And then the children come into this union and they're told their role as well. So mother father, children, all with a healthy, non-competitive structure, in fact, complementary structure. And then in verse 5, because of this, and let me call it um, a human factory, just 
by analogy. Because of this healthy human factory, that is, developing human minds and human hearts, now we can extend that, and the human being can leave the family and start to interact with other minds, other human minds. And what happens in verse 5? Servants, be obedient to them that are your masters. The reason they can do this is because they were shaped at home. And so now they go into employment, and they can be respectful to their employers. Be obedient to them that are your masters according to the flesh, with fear and trembling, in singleness of heart, as unto Christ. You learn that from the family. If if you're not brought up in a proper structure, you will never know this. Do it with fear and trembling, in singleness of your heart, as unto Christ. So it shows us here that work is a good thing. And it's good to work in a loyal way to your employer. And I can, I can actually speak from personal experience at a period in my life, very early as a young man, my life was shattered. And uh, no doubt today uh, they would have given me all kinds of drugs to deal with depression or whatever, but it was just a period in my life that was a very, uh, very hard period. And praise God I came out of it. But one of the things that I did to come out of it was work. I realized I had to work. And I wasn't qualified really to do anything. So I got a job as a security guard. And then the previous security guard, I was taking over a building from somebody, so the security guard before me trained me on how to do the rounds. And what he trained me was, and we we carried these um, pads where we had to do patrols, and we marked the time we do the patrol. So every hour we were supposed to patrol the building and then just report what we saw. So he showed me how to do that. And he said, basically, you sit at your desk, you open the pad, and you just put one o'clock, patrolled the area, everything okay. Two o'clock, patrolled the area, patrolled the premises, everything okay. Three o'clock, I said, well, don't you actually patrol the premises? Oh, no, no, you don't need to do that. Everything's fine. I couldn't do that. What I did was at one o'clock, I got up and I patrolled the premises. And I recorded everything that I saw. And then at two o'clock, I did the same thing. And so by the end of the shift, I had a full report of everything that was happening in the building. And I remember that the management, they were stunned. They contacted the security company to say, who is this guy? We've never, it's like we have eyes and ears into the building. And uh, I got such praise that they called me into the office. And they said, you're doing a wonderful job. We want to promote you and make you a private investigator. So I went to get my private investigator license, and that's another story. I'll save that for another time. <laughs> but I, I, they, they were so pleased. But I did this. I served them in singleness of heart. With, with every, all my, all my fo- It was kind of a dumb job, right? You don't need much to go and walk around. But I did it with all my heart. And it, just, it, it healed me. It gave me something to focus on, something to do. And say, I, I have worth. I have value. I can do something worthwhile. But here we can, we can serve our masters, our employers. We, we, masters in this setting, here we would say employers. We can do this when we understand structure. And it's not the man I'm serving. It's the structure. It's, it's okay. It's as if I'm serving the Lord. How would I serve the Lord? That's how I'm going to serve my employer. But it's not one way. In the same way that a husband and wife is not one way. That the, the wife submits to her husband as unto the Lord. But then there's instructions for the husband. Make sure you love your wife. 
So now you come out of that family, the children honor their parents, and the parents do not provoke the children. The children come out of that, get their first job, and they serve their masters in singleness of heart. But they can do that because, verse 9, and you masters do the same things unto them. Forbearing threatening, you don't need to go there. Knowing that your master also is in heaven, neither is their respective persons with him. So it doesn't matter how great a CEO you are. Realize that your master is in heaven, and you're going to be called into account. And so you're going to understand your, your role in this structure is like the Lord, and you're going to be like the Lord with your employers, employees. And then verse 10, Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord, and in the power of his might. So many times we'll just sort of cut into verse 10 and, and read from here. Be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. So we can read that out of context. And it has meaning out of context. But when we read it in context, we go all the way back to wives submit to your husbands. Husbands, love your wives. Children, honor your parents. Parents, do not provoke your children. Servants, serve your masters, your employers, with singleness of heart. Employers, don't abuse your employees. And it's this whole argument around Christian structure. And understanding physical structure reflects the structure in heaven. That it's in that context, he says, put on the armor of God against the devil. Because he's trying to destroy this. And he has hierarchy. He has principalities. He has powers. And he's using his hierarchy to overthrow societal structure so that he can impose his will. Back to Ephesians 5. At the bottom, verse 32, it just shows the criticality of this role, or of these roles, the family, where he says, in verse 32, this is a great mystery. It's a great mystery. It's not just a mystery. It's a great mystery. But it concerns Christ and the church. It's a great mystery concerning Christ and the church, the church being in this supportive role to Christ, uh, as a, a help meet to Christ, a help uh, supportive and appropriate to Christ, as Christ is going to carry out this great agenda, the church is going to help him. But it's a great mystery. It's hard to unpack the, all of this. Nevertheless, just trust this. Fulfill your role. Let each one of you in particular so love his wife, even as himself, and the wife see that she reverence her husband. Kind of what um, Jan was saying in terms of Gathering knowledge, getting to understanding, and then growing into wisdom. So we don't have to be at the PhD wisdom level. We can just be at the gathering knowledge level. And we don't have, it's a great mystery. It's hard to unpack. But at a minimum, just obey God. Let's just do this. Because it's in the doing of it that the understanding will come. If we can have our families in such a way, that the husband loves his wife, 
The wife reverences her husband. The children honor their parents. The parents love the children. If we can get that right, it's in the living of it that the understanding will come. And it's in the understanding that wisdom will come. Look now at 1 Timothy 5. Where we go from, in Ephesians we saw the family unit, and then we could go into the employment arena. But here in 1 Timothy 5, we go from the family unit to the congregation. So within the congregation now, Paul writing to Timothy in 1 Timothy 5 verse 1, do not rebuke an elder. In this case, it means an older man. So Timothy was a young man. Paul is telling him, don't rebuke an older man. Instead, entreat him as a father. Because the congregation is a family. And so what you've learned from the Christian family structure, the way that your mind has been shaped from the Christian family structure, as you come into the congregation, leverage that understanding. And do not rebuke an elder, an older man, but entreat him as a father, and the younger men as brethren. So as, a, as an elder, as a minister in the congregation, Timothy is being told, treat the younger men like brothers. But if you have to deal with an older man, it's not the same thing. That structure that you had at home where you honored your father, bring that kind of honor to older men in the congregation. The older women as mothers, the younger as sisters with all purity. So there's a real difference here. Timothy doesn't just treat all the women the same and treat all the men the same. There's a difference between younger men and older men and between younger women and older women. Let's go now to a difficult scripture as we're trying to understand the role of the woman. It's in 1 Corinthians 14. We really want to understand this because the role of the woman is critical. It's our role. And we have to get it right in order to see what our role is going to be in the future. Though really the whole Bible from Genesis to Revelation is really about God seeking a bride for his son. He's seeking a bride for his son. And who will that bride be? 1 Corinthians 14 <clears throat> And verse 34, Mark read this for us earlier, very well, by the way. Let your women keep silence in the churches. So we read earlier that the women should submit to their husbands. Now we see that the women, or we read earlier that the wives should submit to their own husbands. Now we see that women should keep silence in the church. It is not permitted unto them to speak, but they are commanded to be under obedience, as also says the law. So there's no getting around this scripture. We have to understand it and implement it. What does it mean? First of all, when it says, let your women keep silence, is the apostle referring to all women? Is he saying that women must be silent in the church? The Greek word for women here is gune. 
So it's let your gunes keep silence. And gune, while it can mean women, it's used to mean wives. It's used when we're talking about a married woman. So here he's saying, a better translation would be, let your wives keep silence in the churches. It's interesting that um, my grandfather is Welsh, from Wales, and in Welsh language, uh, my wife's name, Jennifer, is from Gune Fair, which means fair Gune, or fair lady. So that's interesting. He's a fair lady. Uh, So here now, when he says that they're commanded to be under obedience, as also says the Torah. We have to ask ourselves, where in the Torah does it say that women must be silent? Because he's consistent. He says, the Torah says women must be silent. Does it say that? Well, let's look at that. First of all, we saw... It's, they are commanded to be under obedience, as says the law. So, and this is where a lot of men think that women must be obedient to men. But the Torah doesn't say that. So it says that they, that is wives, gunes, are commanded to be under obedience in the Torah. So we just read that in Genesis 3.16, where Eve was told that she, her husband will rule over her. But also look at Numbers 30. So that's one place in the Torah, Genesis 3.16, where the husband will rule over the wife. So they're commanded to be under obedience, as also says the law. Another place in the Torah we'll find here in Numbers 30. In Numbers 30 and verse 6, And if she had at all a husband... When she vowed, so this is a situation where uh, a woman has made a vow, and now the Torah says this, if this woman had a husband when she vowed, or uttered anything out of her lips, wherewith she bound her soul, and her husband heard it, and held his peace at her in the day that he heard it, then her vow shall stand. And her bonds, wherewith she bound her soul, shall stand. But if her husband disallowed her on the day that he heard it, if he can say, what? You you said what? If he disallowed her on the day that he heard it, then he shall make her vow, which she vowed, and that which she uttered with her lips, wherewith she bound her soul, of none effect. And the Lord shall forgive her. So, so here are two examples in the Torah where it's very clear that wives are to be under obedience to their husbands. First we saw it in Genesis 3, and now we see it here in Numbers. So nowhere does the Torah say that women must be obedient to men. But it certainly does say, and this is a very strong example, where the woman vows a vow before the Lord. And if she's married... When the husband comes to learn of that vow, if he says nothing, then she is bound by that vow. But if he says, what, wait a minute, you said what? No way. Then she's immediately released from the vow. 
and the, and the Lord will forgive her for making that vow. Let's go back now to, let's go back to 1 Corinthians, but this time let's go to 1 Corinthians 7, because in where we just were in 1 Corinthians 14, he said, let your gunes keep silence. In the same letter, the same author, writing to the same people, uses another word for women, single women. And it's in 1 Corinthians 7, where he says, in verse 28, sorry, verse 25, now concerning virgins, that word is parthenos. Now concerning parthenos, so these are unmarried women, I have no commandment of the Lord. So he has a commandment of the Lord for married women, but for virgins he has no commandment of the Lord. Yet I give my judgment as one that has obtained mercy of the Lord to be faithful. So he has a judgment on this, although he hasn't received anything directly from God. He's going to give his opinion. And then he goes on in verse 28. He says, but, and if you marry, you haven't sinned. So this is where a lot of people say, oh, Paul was against marriage. It's contextual. There's something happening at the time where he's saying it's better for you not to marry. But if you do marry, you haven't sinned. And if a Parthenos, if a virgin marries, she hasn't sinned. Nevertheless, such shall have trouble in the flesh, but I spare you. In other words, he's saying it is a bad, bad, bad idea to get married right now. But if you marry, you're not sinning. But it's going to be hard. If, if, if we have a sense of the persecution that's coming and the hatred for Christ and the hatred for followers of Christ, if you're married the same way that um, Satan took down Adam through Eve, he went after Eve to pull down Adam. Uh, Paul is saying, look, this is a bad time to get married. Um, but he says, I spare you, saying, I'll allow it. Go ahead. You want my opinion? Go ahead and marry. It's not, it's not a sin. It's just not wise in the current condition. Verse 29. But this I say, brethren, the time is short. It remains that both they that have, here he says, gunes, both they that have wives who have gunes, be as though they had none. So this is a very difficult period we're entering into. If you're not married, don't get married. And if you are married, you're going to have to conduct yourself like you're not married. That's the context of the situation. But very clearly, in the same letter, he uses gunes when he means wives. And he uses parthenos when he means unmarried women. Let's go back to 1 Corinthians 14. So this is a particular contextual situation in chapter 14 that Paul is addressing, we don't have the question that was raised to Paul. So this is a conversation, this is a, a dialogue between Paul and the church where they've asked him questions and he's answering their questions because there's certain things that were happening. But we do get the sense that the women were very vocal in the church, in the congregation, and very, very out of order. And so here he's addressing their particular situation. He's saying, let your wives keep silence in the church. It's not permitted unto them to speak, 
but they are commanded to be under obedience, as also says the law. So what does he mean by keep silence? They, 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 let, let them keep silence. This is the word sigao, to keep silent, and it means to hold one's peace or to yield. If we go just a couple of chapters earlier, in 1 Corinthians 11, same author, same letter, same audience, what does he say here? In 1 Corinthians 11 and verse 4, he says, Every man praying or prophesying, having his head covered, dishonors his head. So in the congregation, men were praying and they were prophesying, but some of them had their head covered. And he's saying, look, when you do that, you dishonor your head, which is Christ. But every woman that prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, for that is even all one as if she were shaven. So wait a minute, what, which is it? Are the women to be silent or are they allowed to pray and prophesy? Because instead of giving them instructions on how to pray and prophesy, if he's going to be consistent, he should say it's not permitted for them to speak. So they should just be silent. So obviously there's, a, there's something wrong with our understanding of verse 14 when he, he just earlier in the letter said, if the women are going to pray and the women are going to prophesy, make sure that they cover their head. Because if they don't, they might as well be shorn. So, sigao cannot mean they're not allowed to pray, they're not allowed to prophesy, they're not allowed to speak. It must mean something else. Look at Acts 12. <clears throat> Acts 12. And verse 16. This is when uh, Peter and John were arrested and the brethren were praying for their release. And now in verse 16, Peter has been released and he's knocking at the door. They, they've bolted the door because they're afraid of the persecution of the Jews. And here in verse 16, but Peter continued knocking. And when they had opened the door and saw him, they were astonished. They, they thought he was gone. But he beckoning unto them with the hand to hold their peace. Sigao. So he, he's, they're shocked. He's coming. They want to ask him questions like, when did you get out? What happened? Da, da, da. He just beckons with the hand. Sigao. Hold your peace. Then he declared unto them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. So he had something to say. So he's asking them to hold their peace so that he can say what he has to say. So he has something to declare. He doesn't want to be interrupted. So Sigal. And then he explains to them how the Lord brought him out of the prison. And then he said, Go show these things unto James and to the brethren. And he departed and went into another place. So he wasn't there to entertain all their questions. He just said to them, Hold your peace. Here's what happened. Go and tell the others. Let's go to Acts 15. Another example of Sigao. In 
in Acts 15. This, of course, is the famous um, calling together the assembly around the Gentiles and what would they do with the Gentiles. And here in Acts 15, verse 11, But we believe that through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, we shall be saved even as they. Then all the multitude kept Sigal. So everybody's listening. And they gave audience to Barnabas and Paul. So Barnabas and Paul obviously had been um, had a ministry to the Gentiles. And now they're in Jerusalem. And these are people who are capable of speaking. There's apostles in this crowd. There are rabbis, there are teachers in this crowd. But they sagaoed and gave audience to Paul and Barnabas so they could hear what they had to say. And they declared, usually you see sagao and declaration hand in hand. One has to sagao so that the other can declare. So the multitude, the whole multitude, kept silent, sagao, and gave audience, they yielded to Barnabas and Paul, so that Barnabas and Paul could declare what miracles and wonders God had wrought among the Gentiles by them. And after they had held their peace, so there's a period of time where they were in Sagao, it wasn't forever. In the case of uh, Peter, uh, he left. He declared what the Lord had done unto him, told them to tell the others, and then he left. But in this case, the people gave audience they kept silence, and then when they had finished, so, so they got to say everything that they wanted to say about the miracles and wonders among the Gentiles, and then, after they had held their peace, James answered, saying, Men and brethren, hearken unto me. So he was in a state of sagao until they finished their declaration. And then he got up and said, Men and brethren, and then began his conclu- conclusion. Let's go back to 1 Corinthians 14. Now that we have that context of Sagao. <clears throat> and let's get more context right in the same chapter. So we're, we're now in 1 Corinthians 14. Same author, same audience, same letter, same chapter. What is he saying here? Verse 27. If any man speak in an unknown tongue, let it be by two, or at the most by three. So he's imposing order. There's a, there was sort of a craziness in this congregation. They were a bit wild and very enthusiastic, but a bit wild. And so he's imposing order on the congregation and giving them some guidelines. So here, if any man speak in an unknown tongue, let it be by two, or at the most by three, and that by course, and let one interpret. So don't have everybody doing this. Pick two or three, and then take turns. And make sure that one interprets. But if there be no interpreter, let him keep Sagao. So this is speaking to the men. The men have to keep Sagao in the church. And let him speak to himself and to God. So keep Sagao. If there's no interpreter, then yield and let others speak. There's no point in you declaring anything that if people can't understand what you're saying. Let the prophet speak two or three, and let the other judge. And if anything be revealed to another that sits by, let the first hold his peace, sagao. So here, we're, let's say it's um, after sermon discussion, 
and um, I'm speaking, I'm sharing an idea, I feel inspired to speak on something, and then the Spirit inspires Dylan to comment, and maybe he's interrupting me, my reaction is, let me finish. And you'll hear that often when people are interrupted. Let me finish. Paul's instruction is that if the Holy Spirit is working amongst you, you've finished. Because the Holy Spirit is now moving another brother to comment, it means it's done with you. So, sigao. So as I'm speaking and I'm just getting into my role uh, and, and getting on a role, and then Dylan starts to speak, the instruction to me is sigao, yield. And let's hear what the Holy Spirit has to say from Dylan. So sigao is not button it, put duct tape over your mouth and never speak. It's to yield and let the other declare. For you may all prophesy one by one that all may learn and all may be comforted. So again, if we were in our after sermon discussion, everybody can have a say and we can all learn from one another. And the spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets. So the Holy Spirit never competes with itself. And you're never going to have a prophet that contradicts all the other prophets. So in the same way, if we're learning amongst ourselves to prophesy, then we have to follow the same example, that the Holy Spirit is a spirit of order. For God is not the author of confusion. So again, we think back to that family structure where the Marxist agenda is to destroy the family structure to create confusion, to generate children that are confused. But God is not the author of confusion, but of peace, as in all the churches of the saints. In this context now that we fully understand Sigal, he comes into verse 34 and he says, let your wives yield. Let your wives keep Sigal in the churches. For it's not permitted unto them to speak but they are commanded to be under obedience, as also says the law. So they should not be usurping their husbands and shouting out and creating this confusion in the congregation. It should be the husband that speaks. Now, what do we mean by, by speak? Look at 1 Corinthians 16. <clears throat> First Corinthians 16. And let's go to verse 19. <clears throat> where Paul writes to the Corinthians, same author, same audience, same letter. 1 Corinthians 16, now after saying all of these things that he's just said, in verse 19 he says, The churches of Asia salute you. Aquila and Priscilla salute you much in the Lord, with the church that is in their house. So he calls out Aquila and Priscilla, and they are obviously the host, the leaders in this house congregation, and he brings greetings to the brethren. Now, look at Priscilla's role in Acts 18. Verse 
x18 so her her and her husband were the hosts of this congregation and here in acts 18 in verse 24 a certain jew named apollos born at alexandria an eloquent man and mighty in the scriptures came to ephesus so that's quite a combination the man knew the scriptures well, so he was uh, uncontested in his knowledge of the scriptures. And he also was eloquent. He could speak very, very well. So he was born in Alexandria, and he came to Ephesus. The man was instructed in the way of the Lord. So he's a Jew. He didn't know about Christ. He's now being taught Christ. He was instructed in the way of the Lord. And being fervent in the spirit, he spoke and taught diligently the things of the Lord, knowing only the baptism of John. So with the knowledge that he had, he really understood what John's ministry was teaching, and he taught that boldly. And he began to speak boldly in the synagogue. So he he was filled with the spirit. Uh, you, You don't speak boldly without the spirit. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue, whom... When Aquila and Priscilla had heard, they, together, took him unto them, and they expounded unto him the way of God more perfectly. So Priscilla was not uh, insecure. With her husband, they taught this mighty man of God, who was mighty in the scriptures, very eloquent, He just didn't have a full understanding. They're running a a congregation in their home, and they bring this man to them and say, look, you've got part of the solution. We heard your sermon. It was good. You don't quite fully get it. Let us teach you. And so Priscilla, I'm sure, wasn't just there saying nothing. That as Aquila is teaching, she's also explaining to this man so that he can more perfectly teach the way of God. Titus 2. And let me just check in with you. I've got, um, I think I've got about five scriptures to cover. Are we okay? Yeah, good. Okay. In Titus two, and verse one, Paul is speaking to Titus this time, and he says to Titus, "Speak you the things." which become sound doctrine. So what are those things? What are the things that become sound doctrine that that Titus should teach? Well, we don't have to go far because he tells us in the very next line. That the aged men be sober. So, So good doctrine, we've been saying this for a while now, good doctrine is behavioral. Good doctrine leads to holy behavior. Holy doctrine, holy behavior. But you speak the things that become sound doctrine. What are those things? That the aged men be sober, grave, temperate, sound in faith, in charity, in patience. The aged women likewise. That they be in behavior as becomes holiness. So this is again what Pastor Murray is pointing us to. To be holy. And holy doctrine will lead us to holy behavior. So the aged women in the same way as the aged men that they be in behavior as becomes holiness, 
Not false accusers. It should never be that our women are making false accusations. Not given to much wine. Teachers of good things. So how can you be a teacher if, you, if you're not allowed to speak? So these women need to be skilled, as was Priscilla, in teaching good things. And who do they teach? Verse 4. That they may teach the young women to be sober. So it, it means that there needs to be, again, if we are um, growing up in good Christian households, then it's acceptable for an older woman to pull a younger woman aside and teach her holiness. But if the younger woman does not come from a Christian household, then who are you to talk to me? And even the older woman might be afraid to go to, to approach the younger woman. But the way it should be is there should be this structural respect that we have. And so older women should be able to pull a younger woman aside and say, look, here's how to be discreet. Here's how to love your husband. I've done it. It takes a while to get there. Husbands can be a bit awkward to work with. We have to bring them along. And let me show you, let me share with you how I did it with my husband. Uh, then how to love your children. This is a complex endeavor to raise a human mind. Well, if I've done it, and I've done it successfully, let me share with you some of the things I did very early on. If you do these things early on, you'll benefit, and your child will benefit later. To love their children, to be discreet, chaste, keepers at home, good, obedient. Again, you see this everywhere. Obedient to their own husbands. So the older women are not teaching younger women to obey all men. The older women are teaching younger women how to obey their own husbands, the same way that they have. That the word of God be not blasphemed. So, interesting. We have to teach the things that become sound doctrine. And all these things that become sound doctrine have to do with family and our behavior within family, within the context of family, so that the word of God is not blasphemed. So Satan is working to blaspheme God. Satan is working to destroy the family structure. Verse 9, sorry, um, yeah, verse 9 of chapter 2, first Timoth- uh, verse 9 of 1 Timothy 2. Let's go to 1 Timothy 2. So unholy behavior in the family, in the congregation, leads to the blasphemy. It's blaspheming God, the word of God. 1 Timothy 2 and verse 9. In like manner also that the women adorn themselves in modest apparel with shamefacedness and sobriety. A word we don't have anymore. We don't shamefacedness. But it's where a woman would blush if she's exposed in any way. There's a sense of modesty and sobriety. Not with braided hair or gold or pearls or costly array. But that which becomes women professing godliness with good works. Then he says here, let the women or let the woman learn in silence with all subjection. So here the gune is to learn in silence with all subjection. And here this silence is a different word. This is not sagao. 
So in, in previously there was this yielding sagao. This word is hesukia, and it means stillness, quietness. So here he says now in verse 12, so she's to learn in stillness, but I suffer not a woman to teach. Notice this, nor to usurp authority over the man, but to be in silence. So the whole thing has to do with man and wife. And that the wife is not to usurp authority over the man. So in 1 Corinthians 14, the idea that the women are shouting out and they're running the show and the husbands are right there, this is a usurpation. And, and, and Paul is very clear, the woman needs to be under her own husband. So here he says, I, I'm not going to allow a wife to teach, nor to usurp authority over the man, but to be in silence. And then he goes on to explain, for Adam was first formed, then Eve. So he goes all the way back to the garden. I'm not, I'm not going to allow the usurpation of authority here. Why? Because of what happened in the garden. That Satan went after Eve first in order to destroy Adam. And that's what's happening now. So keep the godly structure. Keep the Christian structure. Don't allow Satan to overthrow the Christian structure. He says here, I do not allow a woman, a wife, to teach, nor to usurp authority over the man, but to be in silence. Why? For Adam was first formed, then Eve. So he was the natural leader. He's the one that God spoke to face to face, gave the commandments to. He was then to lead and teach Eve. Instead, she ended up teaching him. And Adam was not deceived. But the woman being deceived was in the transgression. So Satan went after the woman in such a way that she fell for the deception. Adam wasn't deceived. He knew what was right and what was wrong. So in the same way, today, modern times, he's saying it's easy for us to be deceived. And and Satan is going to work the same agenda. Go to the second in command to overthrow the structure. Adam was not being deceived. But the woman being deceived was in the transgression. So she's the one that fell. Notwithstanding, she shall be saved. And the scripture is very clear. Nowhere does the scripture say that Adam will be saved. So she was deceived. He says very clearly in verse 14, Adam wasn't deceived. And then in verse 15, it says she shall be saved. God sentenced Adam to death. He didn't sentence Eve to death. But he sentenced Adam to death. And here, Adam wasn't deceived. She was deceived. Nevertheless, she, Eve, shall be saved in childbearing. Because we go back to Genesis 3.16, when Satan was being sentenced, and that the woman's seed would crush the serpent. So it's in childbearing that the woman will bear the Messiah, And that's how she'll be saved. And then it says, if they continue in faith. Because Eve, her name was changed to Eve because she's the mother of all living. So Adam saw that she's the mother of all living. He changed her name from Isha to Eve. And so all that come out of Eve will be saved if they continue in faith and charity and holiness 
with sobriety. So salvation is in Eve, in her childbearing, and everybody that comes out of Eve will have access to this salvation ultimately if they continue in faith, charity, holiness with sobriety. Then this rolls into chapter 3 of 1 Timothy, where he says this is a true saying. If a man, not a woman, if a man desires the office of a bishop, he desires a good work. A bishop then must be blameless, the husband of one wife, one gune. He doesn't say a person must be the spouse of one, of, of one person. He's very clear. This role is reserved for the husband, for the man. So if a man desires this, it's a good thing that he's desiring, but he has to be blameless. That's not perfect. It just means blameless, that he has a good reputation. He, is, he does what the law requires. He's the husband of one wife. He's vigilant, sober, of good behavior, given to hospitality, and able to teach. So this is where teaching from the lectern comes from. It is going to be from an elder who has the ability to teach, who satisfies these requirements, and one of which being he's not a polygamist. He's not an adulterer. He's loyal, and he understands how to love the one wife so that he can understand the role of Christ behaviorally, experientially, so then he can teach from that perception and that, that depth of experience. And then he goes on to say, not given to wine, no striker, not greedy of filthy lucre or money, but patient, not a brawler, not covetous. So no striker, not a violent person. And again, as I said earlier, uh, you know, if you have a husband and wife, this is why this uh, doctrine that it's okay for men to beat their wives is right out of the devil's mind. So you're going to put that in holy scripture and say, God says it's okay for a man to beat his wife. That comes from the mind of the devil. That creates such trauma in the household that the children that are growing up in that kind of trauma, their minds are seared. Decades later, you're going to still see those people have problems, except God intervenes with the Holy Spirit. He says here, so again, so we can't have someone who is going to not understand the role of family in a congregational setting because the congregation is just an extended family. 1 Timothy 3 and verse 4, one that rules well his own house. He's got to get it. He's got to understand how to govern his household because the congregation is a household having his children in subjection with all gravity. And then in verse 12, it's the same thing for deacons. Let the deacons be husbands of one wife. So again, these are men, and we see that in Acts 6 when the, the seven were chosen to look after women's affairs, that these are men that are husbands of one wife, ruling their children and their own houses well. And again, that means if they're ruling their house well, they have the support of the wife. If they're not ruling it well, the wife is going to resist them. The wife is going to resent them. But if they're ruling it well, that husband and wife relationship will be healthy and strong. And I mentioned earlier that Christ came into such a household. Look now at 1 Peter 3. 
where we see a similar instruction. This time it's coming from Peter, where he says here in 1 Peter 3, verse 1, Likewise, you wives, be in subjection to your own husbands again, your own husbands. You never see the Bible say women are subjected to men. It's wives, be in subjection to your own husband. That if any obey not the word, they also may, without the word, be won by the conduct of the wives. So if they're not obeying the word, don't try to convert them with the word. They don't obey the word. But your behavior can win them over. And I think it was Pastor Murray quoted in his sermon uh, from the funeral of George Bush where there was someone who gave the advice that they should uh, preach Christ and once in a while with words or once in a while in a sermon. The idea being it's, it's the way we live. So same here, the woman, her, her, the way she supports her husband declares the Christian doctrine of Christ and the church. While they behold your chaste conduct coupled with fear, whose adorning, let it not be that outward adorning of plaiting the hair, of wearing of gold, or of putting on apparel, but let it be the hidden man of the heart, in that which is not corruptible, even the ornament of a meek and quiet spirit. And you just wonder how some Christian women are so loud when this is, this is what the woman should be doing, is putting on this meek and quiet spirit, which is in the sight of God of great price. And so again, those women in 1 Corinthians 14 that are just out of control, here we see what God really wants, is that reflection of Christ and the church. For after this manner, in the old time, the holy women, so we have to be holy, this is what they did also, who trusted in God, adorned themselves, being in subjection unto their own husbands. There it is again. They're in subjection to their own husbands, not to any man. Even as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, whose daughters you are, as long as you do well, and are not afraid with any amazement. Likewise, you husbands, dwell with them according to knowledge, giving honor unto the wife as unto the weaker vessel, and as being heirs together of the grace of life, that your prayers be not hindered. So God doesn't want to hear from the husband that beats his wife. He doesn't want to hear from the husband who abuses his wife. And I think we can naturally say he doesn't want to hear from the woman that abuses her husband or, or disrespects her husband that that relationship is so important that our prayers are cut off if we don't get that right. Let's conclude, brethren, in Revelation. And we'll go to Revelation 17 first. In Revelation the end of everything, we see two women. And we really see that mankind is categorized according to these two women. So all of mankind either comes under one woman or the other. The first one we'll look at is here in Revelation 17. And in verse 3, 
He said, so he carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness. And I saw a woman sit upon a scarlet colored beast. So she's on top of this beast, full of names of blasphemy, having seven heads and ten horns. And the woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet color and decked with gold and precious stones and pearls, having a golden cup in her hand full of abominations and filthiness of her fornication. So this is one woman who, this is sort of the ultimate usurpation. All the kings of the earth, all the beasts, all the empires are under her. And there is nothing going on inside except filth. But on the outside, she is gorgeous, just splendid on the outside. And this is the ultimate objective, I would say. This is women's liberation fulfilled. And this is really where, if we're going to follow a, 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 an agenda of usurpation, this is where we're heading. Contrast that. Well, actually, just in verse 18, we'll just look at verse 18 first. The woman which you saw is that great city which reigns over the kings of the earth. Satan's agenda fulfilled. All the men are under her. She's, she's the one. So that's what Satan, that's what, that really reflects, I said earlier, Eve was to Adam as Lucifer was to God. And so to take the woman and have her usurp authority, this is Satan's agenda. That don't be second, be first. Contrast that with Revelation 21. And verse 9. And there came unto me one of the seven angels, which had the seven vials full of the seven last plagues, and talked with me, saying, Come here, and I will show you the bride, the Lamb's wife. So, this is a great mystery. But we need to understand the role of the woman. What is a woman's place? Because whatever that is, that's our place. And if we don't get it right, we can't understand what it is God is calling us to. And we're going to miss the mark. So Revelation 3 will end here in verse 21. Where all of this is coming at us, I, I think that title, Marxianity, whoever came up with that, uh, that's just inspired. Because that, that is what we're facing today, even in the church of God. Maybe in a very uh, mild way, we're starting to see traces of Marxianity. Where rather than focus on the gospel, and preaching the gospel, and living the gospel, we're focusing on social justice. And we're bringing social justice into the church as if this is Christianity. So Revelation 3, verse 21 says, To him that overcomes will I grant to sit with me in my throne. We will assist Christ. This is a woman's place. 
with her husband. We're not going to be over Christ. We're not going to usurp authority from Christ. We're going to fit right in because we've come to understand a woman's place. And all of the propaganda and all of the fake news and all of the uh, social justice uh, manipulation, we're not falling for it. We're going to overcome all of that and fight for the structure of the Christian family. Whether we're married or not is not the point. It's understanding the structure of marriage. And once we understand that, we're somebody's son. We're somebody's daughter. We might be somebody's father or mother or husband or wife. But it all comes back to the Christian family and the Christian marriage and a woman's place. When we can overcome all of this, he will grant for us to sit with him in his father's throne in his throne even as he also overcame and is now set down with his father in his throne christ has a place and we as the bride of christ have our place and that's a woman's place this has been a podcast from the burlington congregation of the church of god international We hope you are blessed by it. To find out more about CGI Burlington, visit our website at cgiburlington.org.